Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. Please go to brightnews.com or anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S or acons.substack.com. And there you can find our uh, commentary. You can find this podcast. You can also go to your favorite podcasting uh, platform and you can find us there also. Josh Blackman holds the Centennial Chair of Constitutional Law at the South Texas College of Law, Houston. Professor Blackman is the author of three books, one case book, five dozen law review articles, and his commentary has appeared in national publications. He is also the president of the Harlan Institute. Welcome back to the show, Professor Blackman. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. What is Fantasy SCOTUS and how can we play? You know, it's a thing in my record that people love the most. It's a Supreme Court fantasy league, exactly what it sounds like. Um, users can make predictions about all Supreme Court cases that are currently pending before the court. You predict how each of the nine justices will vote. Uh, it's something I founded back in 2009. We're now in its almost 13th season. And uh, it's a lot of fun. I really, it's something I really enjoy. Well, you happen to be talking to the lady that uh, just made the semifinals in her fantasy football league. Mm -hmm. So I'm always looking for another fantasy challenge. Very good. Very good. Well, What's your record? You... <laughs> you know, in candor, I'm not that good. Uh, I just run the league. I'm the commissioner. I'm not the uh, MVP. Uh, but some of our best players can predict up to 80% of the cases with accuracy. Oh, wow. Um, it's remarkable. I, I, you know, I, I don't know enough about the more obscure cases, like the tax case or the case on, uh, you know, bankruptcy. I just don't know enough to make an informed decision. But some people really nail it every year. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, now, many are in our audience uh, will be pleasantly surprised to know that they can access two Josh Blackman constitutional law courses for free on YouTube and won't be obligated to take the finals. Was this solely a pragmatic measure or do you agree with other educators that this form of teaching is the future? I have been posting my classes to YouTube since 2012, long before Zoom, long before COVID, long before everything else. Um, and I've made my lectures freely available. Uh, I firmly believe that knowledge should be free. And if I am sitting in a classroom recording my lectures um, for the benefit of my students, there's no reason to keep it just for my students. Um, over the years, I've gotten better cameras, you know, better microphones, better lighting, and you know, other things have improved. Uh, but the basic stuff is the same. I live stream every class. Uh, my students appreciate it. And when I travel, I meet students at other law schools who have used my lectures, who have used my videos, and they really appreciate it. Uh, so something I'm very, very proud of. Uh, it's also a bit of an insurance policy as well. Um, very often students will hear one thing and I say something else. Uh, but when it's recorded, we can, we can clarify any doubt. And any anyone who says, oh, you said so-and-so, that's not what I said. Check the tape. Uh, so it's actually something that works my benefit in many regards. Pretty cool. 
You and uh, co-author Randy Barnett describe an introduction to constitutional law as a chart of the evolution of constitutional doctrine from the founding to today. During this evolution, we've seen the court criticized as being too powerful and too legislative and also being dismissed as increasingly irrelevant due to the rise of the bureaucratic state. How would you gauge the power of the court relative to the power you believe it was intended to have? Well, I appreciate the, uh, the question, also the plug for our book, uh, which is now available in both a paperback, uh, both in a hardcover and a paperback edition as well. So readers should definitely check the book out. Um, the Supreme Court has been around for more than 200 years and its cases have really fluctuated. In the earlier years, the court wasn't very important. The decisions it rendered had very little impact uh, on most issues and people can go about their lives on a day-to-day basis without really thinking about the Supreme Court. But over the last 100 years and probably more of the last 50 or 60 years, the Supreme Court has become a very important aspect of everyday life. They're asked to decide questions on issues like abortion or affirmative action or gun control. And it seems the court is sort of embedded in every major controversy. And one of the biggest controversies that your question uh, referenced is the administrative state. What is the role of these various bureaucracies to uh, regulate every facet of human existence? Um, Congress seems to be okay with these agencies uh, the executive branch loves these agencies because it lets it decide broad issues about passing new legislation. And so increasingly, the third branch, the courts, are being asked to decide um, what role should the administrative state have and how much deference or how much respect the court should give to the decisions of these administrative agencies. You once said, quote, the story of constitutional law is not a straight line. It sort of goes like a sine wave, if you will. It oscillates in accordance with political discussions of the time. Very often when you have a president who's more liberal and he appoints uh, more liberal justices, uh, the court trends in a more liberal direction. And when you have more con- a more constitutional president who appoints more conservative justices, the court still trends in a liberal direction, end quote. Why is this so? You know, the Supreme Court is not fixed. Um, the Supreme Court's decisions change directly based on the sorts of people that are appointed. Um it's certainly the case that when you have a president, let's say Franklin Roosevelt, who made nine appointments to the Supreme Court, he re- remade the entire court in his image, literally, right? You had nine progressives join the court in a, a fairly short period of time. Uh, now, not all those judges turned out to be entirely as progressive as Roosevelt in all regards, but they were mostly to the left. Um, by contrast, Republican presidents historically have not done very well. The judges they've appointed have been maybe conservative. A lot of them are moderate, the sort of swing votes. And then many of them went to the left. I can start with President Eisenhower, who appointed Chief Justice Earl Warren, Justice William Brennan. These are two of the most liberal judges ever from a Republican appointee. President Nixon appointed Harry Blackman, no relation, 
It's M U N. Uh, Justice Blackman wrote the Roe v. Wade decision. Uh-huh. President Reagan appointed Sandra Day O'Connor and Justice Kennedy, who, who were moderate right leaning, but they both vote to reaffirm Roe v. Wade uh, three decades ago. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts was an appointee of George W. Bush. Jo- uh, President George H. W. Bush appointed Justice David Souter, who were all who was quite liberal. Um, even even uh, the the Chief Justice now Roberts often swings to the left. So it, it seems that the Democratic presidents bat a thousand that their judges just about always do what Democrats uh, sort of expect judicially. Uh, Republican judges are much harder to predict, but I think Trump, for all of his uh, shortcomings, improved the process of selecting judges significantly. I think so far we, we've we made good strides with the Trump nominees, both on the lower courts and the Supreme Court. Do you think that that has something to do with the fact that the left tends to live in an echo chamber, whereas the right really does embrace diversity of opinion? You know, I think I think there are different ju- judicial philosophies, right? If your judicial philosophy is um, do justice, right? We have to use the courts in a pragmatic fashion to achieve justice. There might be some minor disagreements on the edges, but you agree where to go. Uh, but conservatives, I, I, and I believe this, tend to favor methodology, that we have to favor textualism or originalism, or we have to favor some mode of restraint. And those different forces tug you in different directions, so you don't always wind up with a conservative outcome. So I don't think it's a reflection of the judges themselves, but, but really about judicial philosophy. Uh, also, progressives tend to be more willing to compromise and, 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 and you know, trade votes and to sort of um, maybe join an opinion they don't like all the way, but to get five votes, they'll do it. Whereas the conservative judges tend to be more stubborn and are not willing to always keep a five-member block together and they fracture. Uh, so I think there are just differences in how people go about deciding cases that reflects different philosophies and that yields different outcomes in many decisions. That's a fair point. Now, one reason readers should read your book even if they are not or nor intend to be legal scholars, is because the history of the Supreme Court is largely a history of African-Americans. One example is the Prigg versus Pennsylvania case. What is the significance of this case? I'm so glad you asked about that. Um, You know, most people know about the Dred Scott decision, right? This is a case that everyone knows about. Uh, this is a case that held that people of African descent could not be citizens. They could not have any rights under the Constitution. Um, but to be frank, that decision was kind of late in the game. It came only a few years before the Civil War began. And by that point, the Union was already fractured. We were already, we were already toast, right? Another decision that you referenced was much earlier in the 1820s called Prigg versus Pennsylvania. This case involved the Fugitive Slave Act which I'm sure many people have heard of. Um, under the original constitution, we had some slave states and we had some free states. What would happen if a slave ran away, let's say from Maryland, which was a slave state, to Pennsylvania, which was a free state? There was a law called the Fugitive Slave Act, which said that if there was a runaway slave, people would be empowered by federal law to basically capture the runaway slaves and return them to their home state. 
So what happened here? A slave, in fact, ran away from Maryland to Pennsylvania. It may have actually been with the consent of the of the master. There, there's some evidence that they were actually agreeing to this and that there was a, a marriage to be had in Pennsylvania to, to another person. Uh, but, but we don't know all the details. Um, a person named Prig went to Pennsylvania to capture the runaway slave. Pennsylvania said, oh, no, no, we're not going to let this happen. Pennsylvania had what's called a liberty law. Pennsylvania actually arrested the slave catcher and said, you cannot kidnap a person, right? This is violating our state law. He was basically actually convicted of kidnapping. But the slave catcher said, no, no, no. You can't enforce this state law against me because the federal law, which is supreme, the federal law gives me the right to, 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 to capture this human being, right? This runaway slave. So this case goes to the Supreme Court and has the court rule. The court rules for the slave catcher. And they say that the states cannot protect the runaway slaves because federal law is supreme. That the federal constitution gives government the power to enable these awful, uh, odious slave catchers to, to, to kidnap people across state lines. Now, why is this case important? Today, we often think of states' rights as kind of the, um, you know, the, the, the preference of the southern states, the slaveholding states. But here you have Pennsylvania trying to protect their people. And the Supreme Court said no states' rights for Pennsylvania. Federal law is supreme. And this was one of the first decisions of the court said the federal government has these broad powers. And you see in these cases, the broad powers let what happen? Slave catchers. So this case sort of turns every narrative upside down, where you have Pennsylvania favoring states' rights. You have the southern states favoring broad federal power. And you have the Supreme Court saying, yes, this broad federal power exists, and because they can have slave catching. And that was the first Fugitive Slave Act. Another act was passed several years later so that was even more harmful. So Dred Scott was dreadful, to use a phrase, but Prigg had a much bigger effect on the state of slavery in the Union than Dred Scott ever could. Well, let's touch on Dred uh, Scott for a moment. In Dred Scott versus uh, Sanford, we saw Chief Justice Taney declare that African-Americans were not and could never be American citizens. What were Tawny's intended consequences with this ruling? And given that it's largely unthinkable, uh, a Supreme Court ruling would be disregarded, especially by a sitting president. Why did Lincoln do so in this case? Right. So the Dred Scott case, the facts of it are not well understood. Right. Um, the case involves federal court. So usually to get into federal court, a citizen of one state can sue a citizen of another state that gets you to federal court. So here you had Dred Scott who lived in Missouri and the person who claimed to own Scott lived in New York. Aha. Uh -huh. So here we go. We have a citizen of New York. You have a citizen of Missouri. They can sue each other in federal court, right? Wrong. Tawny held in Dred Scott that this person, this person who said he had been freed, he had been emancipated, was not a citizen of Missouri. He was not a citizen at all because he was of African descent. So the reason why the court decided that Scott could not be a citizen was because of this sort of, you know, boring question of federal courts. 
But Tommy went out of his way to eliminate any possibility that a black person could be a citizen, even though at the time that the declaration was written and when the constitution was signed, certain states granted citizenship to free blacks. This is history. This is not a myth. Tawney ignored a lot of actual history to degrade people of African descent. Why? He was trying to settle the slavery issue. He wanted to just say, okay, you know what? We can't have half free, half slave. We can't have this sort of, you're a citizen, you're not. We're just going to make a clean ruling. Black people are not citizens, and we'll move on with our lives. This was one of the worst decisions that any judge has ever made in, in the history of the universe, right? He really thought that this would just settle the issue. People say, okay, I guess you're right, Tawny. We'll just move along and go back, yeah. go back to the, you know, he really believed this and he was wrong. Now, the second part of your question about Lincoln, this is where it gets fascinating. The Dred Scott decision only confirmed, uh, the Dred Scott decision uh, concerned two people, Dred Scott and Sanford the guy who claimed to be the master, right? No one else was a party to this case. The United States government was not a party to this case. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, look, we're not going to ignore the ruling. We'll just simply limit it to Dred Scott and Sanford. The ruling has no effect beyond those two people. So what did Lincoln do? When he was president, he issued passports to free blacks. To be a passport holder, he must be a citizen. What else did he do? He said if a black person enrolled in the military, he would grant them citizenship, right, under U.S. law. That was mm -hmm. in direct conflict with the Dred Scott decision. Mm -hmm. He then issued the very famous Emancipation Proclamation, which said that black people who are held in certain areas, actually it wasn't the entire South, just certain areas in the South, not, forget Kentucky, not Maryland. Delaware, Maryland, you have luck, right? But 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 certain states in the South that were uh, uh, supporting the Confederacy, you would be emancipated, and so would your family. Lincoln did this by basically saying, "Dred Scott concerned Dred Scott and Sanford. That's nice. I'm going to do my own thing." And this was very controversial. Even some abolitionists did not favor what Lincoln did on the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, but but he did it, and, and this shows that Supreme Court cases aren't always the final word. As I as I tell my students, the Supreme Court does not have a monopoly on the Constitution. We have a president, we have a Congress. They take the same oath to the Constitution. Yeah, that's that's a great way of explaining it. Another civil rights case uh, of great interest to us is the Loving versus Virginia case. Yeah. What was the Supreme Court's reasoning for the ruling in this instance? Right. So the history here is very sordid. Um, in the early 1900s, Virginia passed a law that banned interracial marriage. And that same law also prohibited or I'm sorry, that same law also allowed the state to sterilize so-called imbeciles, right? The same legislation banned interracial marriage and said the state can sterilize so-called imbeciles. Why? Eugenics. The deal was that undesirable people should not reproduce, right? You have to understand these laws, they work together. It was truly really about making the human race pure, 
and cleansing the human race of imperfections. It, it was, if it sounds like something Hitler would say, it was the Nazis copied oh, us yeah. in many regards. The, the eugenic movement really got started in the United States, just Hitler perfected it. He, he made it the official government policy. That's absolutely right. Uh, Margaret Sanger, uh, yeah. I believe one of her uh, colleagues was Ernst Rudin. So yeah, absolutely. It, so the interracial marriage ban was an, an act in Virginia in the early 1900s. Um, and this law, as it says, prohibited. And it wasn't just black people and white people. It was if you were Asian, if you were Hispanic, there was no mixing of the races that were allowed. And just to make this clear, back in the day, the only way you could actually have relations with another person was by being married, right? Any children produced outside of marriage were considered legitimate and they could not inherit property. There was a lot of consequences. So to say that only uh, uh, you can only marry someone of your own race would say that you can only have relations with someone of your own race. It wasn't even just marriage. It was reproduction altogether. Uh, so you have the Lovings. This was a black and white couple, uh, a, a white man and a, and a black woman who lived in rural Virginia. Um, and they were married and they had young children. This is a devastating story. Um, the wife was pregnant. The cops break into their house in the middle of the night, in the dark of night. I think it was a Friday night. And they arrest the husband and wife. The husband gets out on bond right away. But the wife, who was pregnant, was kept in the jail cell the entire weekend. Oh, you know, it's Friday. We'll see you on Monday morning. And again, she was pregnant at the time. Dreadful story. The judge in that case sentenced them of violating the statute. And you know what their punishment was? Not jail. They had to leave the state. They had to leave Virginia forever. <laughs> and they could not come back if they were married. So the family moved to the District of Columbia, where uh, uh, they lived for a number of years. Um, but they wanted to then move back to Virginia. That's where their family was. That's where their home was. They wanted to be near farm uh, life. Uh, so they decided to find litigation, right? They, they found a sort of creative way of challenging their conviction. It wasn't obvious, but they figured a way of doing it. And the Supreme Court ruled for them unanimously. And there were two different... Um, parts of the opinion in Loving versus Virginia. By the way, best case name ever, Loving, right? Such a good name for this case. Uh, the first was what was called equal protection, the idea that the government cannot treat people differently based on their race. And this was an easy case. The court already ruled that segregated schools were unconstitutional. You can have segregated public, public facilities. So to say you can't ban interracial marriage was just a really easy decision. The second part of the opinion Im Im implicated something called substantive due process. Substantive due process. This is the notion that the Constitution protects certain liberty interests, right? That there, there's some sort of substance to the Constitution. And one of these liberty interests is the right of marriage, the right to raise a family, the right to pursue your own livelihood. Uh, these are certain liberties the court has recognized. Uh, so the, the loving decision had both elements, both equal protection and the sort of substantive due process. These were these two parts of the opinion. Um, but it was 9-0 in both cases, a unanimous decision. And, and even at the time that loving was decided, most states had either repealed or in the process of repealing their, their interracial marriage bans. Um, and today, I'll give you an anecdote. Uh, you know, the percentage of people who are okay with interracial marriage is is. I think close to 100%. It's very high. 
Um, on the flip side, the percentage of people who are okay with interpolitical marriages, that is their daughter marrying a Democrat or Republican, is much lower. So as people are going okay with interracial marriage, interpolitical marriages are going down. So I don't know what the hell that says about us. I'm, I'll let you decide. Uh, but, but you know, half a century later, um, I think the Loving case is pretty, pretty settled. No, no jurisdiction I know would even consider that sort of that sort of prohibition on marriage. The Warren Court ruled against school segregation in Brown v. Board of Education, uh, partly on the grounds of quote social science research as you put it, um, as grateful as we are for this ruling, could this nonetheless be construed as legislating from the bench? Look, so Brown is one of these cases which everyone has to love because it was such a momentous decision for right. um, equality in the schools. But if you actually just take a step back, even a half step back, and you read the opinion, it leaves a lot of people going, huh, right? Every year when I teach this case, my students are consistently surprised, underwhelmed, or confused at what the basis of the ruling was. Um, the Supreme Court basically says, well, when the 14th Amendment was ratified, you know, Congress segregated the schools in the District of Columbia. So we don't really, we're not really going to look at history because it doesn't really get us where we want to go. Instead, we will look at other sources. And what they looked to was social science literature showing that segregated schools produced harmful effects, that students had insecurities, they learned um, less effectively, that, that it, it bred a, a feeling of supremacy or inferiority in students. Um, and the basis of these sort of articles, which haven't also the test of time, but on the basis of these articles, the court held that you cannot have separate but equal in the public education sphere. It didn't overrule Plessy entirely, it sort of left it on its, you know, on life support. Uh, but this is a decision that, again, people can like, but the actual ruling itself leaves a lot to be desired. This is one of the areas I think that I struggle with because I feel that education is still somewhat of a civil rights issue, even though, uh, you know, we, we have integrated schools now, they still feel very separate and unequal because of the way that they're funded. If you are a child who is growing up in a, an urban center, for example, um, and it's a low-income urban center because of the property taxes, that school tends to stay the way that it is, whereas an affluent school, because of the area that it's in and the people that pay those taxes, those schools tend to have computer labs and tennis courts and things that other schools don't have. So, you know, it's it's it's, it's something that I still struggle with, and I would like to see something uh, change in that regard in my lifetime. I homeschooled my three kids Uh because our schools were not that great. And so, you know, my kids got to do things like robotics and things that kids in the district schools where we lived never got to do really. Well, I, I am very sympathetic. Actually, I have two young kids now. I'm thinking about public schools now and I'm sort of getting to that mindset. So it's, it's, it's a significant issue. Um, the, from my perspective, the question is what does the U S constitution say about it? And, um, you know, the answer is probably not very much in terms of educational equality. Um, I think a lot of the um, a lot of the arguments are premised more on class than on race, and and, and the court has largely held that uh, 
inequality with respect to monetary contributions does not itself violate the constitution. Uh, but I, I am very sympathetic to the policy arguments of why perhaps state funding of schools might be more optimal than district funding of schools, which are, as you know, to peg to property taxes. Yeah. In your summary of Barron v. Baltimore, you quote Chief Justice John Marshall as saying that the Bill of Rights, quote, contains no expression indicating an intention to apply them to the state governments, end quote. You then point out, quote, today, almost all of the provisions of the Bill of Rights have now been extended to the states by incorporating them into the Due Process Clause as the 14th Amendment, end quote. Would you take us through this dramatic expansion of the court's power? You know, you pick my favorite case in the entire book, right? So there were over 100 cases. You pick my favorite one, which is one no one's ever heard of, uh, Barron versus Baltimore. All right, so let's start in 1787. Um, in the summer of 1787, the framers draft the Constitution, uh, and then they sent it to the states to be ratified or approved. Uh, but a number of the states said, wait a minute, we like this amendment, but we want more, right? We want express protections of rights, you know, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, it's, and so on. Um, the Constitution was approved in 1788, and then 1789, Congress drafted what would become 10 amendments to the Constitution. We now call them the Bill of Rights. And these 10 amendments protected things like speech and religion and the right to bear arms and uh, property rights and so on. Um, but as originally understood, these amendments, the Bill of Rights, only limited federal power. That is, Congress could not violate the freedom of speech. Congress cannot violate the right to bear arms. Congress cannot violate the Establishment Clause, right? All these cases concerned federal power. Then we have Barron, right? In Barron, you have a property owner in Maryland in Baltimore Harbor, and the government floods his property and makes it unusable. He sues as a ha, the, the government violated my property rights. Give me, give me compensation. You took my property. Uh, the Supreme Court said no go, right? Not going to work because the takings clause, the, 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 the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution only protects you against the federal government. Maryland is not subject to the Bill of Rights. So for the first you know, 100 years of the Republic, the states could violate the Bill of Rights. Indeed, they did. The Southern states routinely violated the, the speech and religion rights of slaves, for example. But all that changed with the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment recognized that the states could not be trusted and that they too would have to protect certain fundamental rights, certain very important liberties. And between the 1860s and the 1960s, it took about 100 years, the Supreme Court said, okay, Bill of Rights, First Ten Amendments, we're going to now extend these rights to the states. So as it stands today, virtually every provision in the first 10 amendments limits both the federal government and the state government, but it took some time to get there. Another interesting case mentioned is the Katzenbach the, uh, versus McClung case in which the court allowed uh Congress to stretch its power under the Commerce Clause by allowing it to regulate a small private barbecue shop on the grounds that some of its supplies arrive from other states. Again, however much we may de uh, detest racial discrimination 
and love good barbecue. Uh, was this clause intended to be as elastic as it was interpreted here by the Warren Court and have subsequent cases like the United States v. Lopez been sufficient in reining in congressional and judicial com the Commerce Clause abuse? In 1964, Congress enacts the landmark Civil Rights Act. This law was sweeping. One of the provisions prohibited discrimination on the basis of race in places of public accommodation, which included restaurants, hotels, barbershops, gas stations, businesses that are generally open to the public, public accommodation. Um, you had two cases that were went to the Supreme Court over this. The first was involved the Heart of Atlanta Motel, which was in Atlanta. And this hotel catered primarily to people who traveled on the interstate highway, right? The hotel itself was stationary. It only had one location in Atlanta. But a lot of people who traveled down the interstate highway would stay in this hotel. And the hotel would often advertise in you know, AAA and other magazines to say, hey, come to our hotel in Atlanta. And the Supreme Court said that this hotel affects the, what they call the, 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 the channels of interstate commerce. And therefore, Congress has the authority to regulate these interstate travelers. And so this case was a little bit easier. The second case was harder. It involved Ollie's Barbecue, which was a restaurant in Birmingham, Alabama. It was a segregated restaurant. They would not seat Black people in the restaurant, they had Black staff and Black waiters, but they couldn't actually eat there. Um, this restaurant did not cater to people out of state. They did not advertise people out of state. I think 100% of their clientele were locals. Didn't matter, the Supreme Court said. They, they import food from out of state. They import ovens. They import other cooking equipment from out of state. Even if something they have had a part that came from out of state, that's enough. They call this a jurisdictional hook. That some connection somewhere in the business interstate commerce, that gives the federal government the power to regulate it. Right. So at the time, people like Barry Goldwater and others actually opposed the Civil Rights Act as beyond Congress's powers. Um, the Supreme Court upheld it unanimously. And I don't think there's much of a movement today to overrule Katzenbach and to overrule Heart of Atlanta. But these decisions still represent very broad expansions of federal power. And there might be other statutes that are at risk, uh, even if the Civil Rights Act is safe. Now, you've written extensively about Obamacare, including how liberals attempted to use the Commerce Clause to argue that Congress had the authority to enact a requirement that we buy health insurance. Was that argument rooted in Katzenbach versus McClung? Well, the, the Obamacare case, I think I was on your show some years ago to talk about my first book on Obamacare. Yes. Uh, the Obamacare case was a little bit different. In Katzenbach, in the heart of Atlanta, the government was regulating classes of economic activity, that is selling a hotel room, selling a plate of barbecue, right? Whatever you're selling. The Obamacare case was different. The government was regulating a class of inactivity, that is the choice not to buy health insurance was not activity. And the government was coercing you or nudging you, if you will, to go ahead and buy insurance through the, the enforcement of the penalty. So, so the Obamacare case in some regards was different. It was not controlled by Katzenbach. The Supreme Court could have ruled against Obamacare without overruling those other 
uh, a case of, you know, the chief justice decides to do his own thing. Your book points out that the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which was the public action performed by non-governmental actors by barring discrimination based on race. But when a private company colludes with the FBI and a political party uh, to secretly discriminate against certain customers based on those customers' political beliefs, for example, if Twitter shadow banned or otherwise repressed Professor Josh Blackman's ability to express his views on the platform without telling him beforehand that his tweets would not be treated equally to the tweets of others. Is that a nothing burger, as the media is saying? Or is that a double quarter pounder with cheese, in your view? I can't imagine why you're asking me that question. No, that, <laughs> and I know we don't rip any of this from the I, headlines I, I at all. What you're asking no. Me. Um, so look, here's the issue, right? The 14th Amendment says that states cannot deprive people of certain interests. He were there as states. This is what's called the state action doctrine, where historically the 14th Amendment only limits the state governments and, and eventually the federal governments as well. Um, but what happens when the state and the federal government and corporations sort of work hand in hand? At what point do private actors become public? actors. And this issue has been very salient in recent years with regard to social media companies like Twitter and Facebook and otherwise. And a lot of people, even on the right, argue that these companies have had a free pass, that they should be subject to more federal scrutiny, they should be subject to liability, um, uh, and they shouldn't be giving so much latitude to silence people of, of, uh, on the right. Uh, now, this isn't so much a constitutional issue, it's one more of statutory issue, right? There's a law called Section 230. People have heard of the Communications Decency Act. And this law provides immunity to tech companies who host or serve as platforms for different types of uh, uh, information. And they're allowed to have content moderation policies, which are not always enforced fairly, at least in some people's views. So I think we're seeing on the right a very close reexamination of this immunity and a question whether the courts and litigation can be used to scrutinize what it is these companies been doing uh but uh it, it's it's an issue that's getting a lot of weight especially now with elon doing twitter and you know what's going on there uh but it's, it's a very salient issue now oh definitely and one that i think we'll be following for some time following the controversial dobbs v jackson decision clarence thomas generated further controversy by writing that the due process clause quote at most guarantees process end quote what was justice thomas's meaning here well i mentioned a few minutes ago the doctrine of substantive due process right uh so the 14th amendment says that no state shall deprive a person of life liberty or property without due process of law, right? What does the phrase liberty mean? What does process mean? In the 1960s and 70s, the Supreme Court said that there's liberty, abortion, birth control, right? Uh, homosexual sodomy, right? These various things are liberty and the state cannot deprive you of that liberty through legislation. Justice Thomas rejects that notion. He says, no, 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 no. All the amendment says is that if they're going to deprive you of liberty, they must give you process. That is a trial or a hearing or a procedure. That doesn't mean these laws are invalid in, in their own right. So what Thomas said in his opinion was that there is no 
right to an abortion in the Constitution. There is no right to contraception. There is no right to having same-sex relations. These are nothing to do with the Constitution. And therefore, all you get is process. If the government wants to deprive you of this, they must give you a hearing, give you a trial, and that's it. You can't have the courts come in and strike down these laws. Well, now you mentioned liberty, but it seems to me that depriving someone of life, such as what happens in abortion, a life that is not yours, uh, seems to violate the spirit of that. But I could be wrong. I'm not a scholar. Well, a lot of people do make that argument. They say that the Constitution says no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property that due process of law, right? If a fetus is a person, then the government cannot deprive the person of life. Or more precisely, if a fetus is a person, the government must provide equal protection of the law. That is, protect them equal to the law. That if people who are born are protected, then people who are not born should be protected as well. This turns a lot on what the definition of a person is. Um, in the Dobbs case, the Supreme Court did not decide this issue. They wanted nothing to do with it. They said, we don't have to decide this. Not our problem. Not our problem. Uh, but there was a very vigorous effort to say that you have fetal personhood, that at, at conception you have a person, and they're then entitled to the full protections of the 14th Amendment. Absolutely. Now, in McConnell v. the Federal Election Commission, it says there is a restriction regarding soft money, which can be defined as, quote, funds, goods, or services that influences election but is not required by campaign finance law that can be made to political parties, end quote. Uh -huh. Why then is a president allowed to accept free network television time? Uh, time that can be valued in the tens of millions to give a speech two months before a national election that argues that the oppositional party, the MAGA folks, uh, are determined to take this country backwards. Well, campaign finance is a very murky area of the law because there's some very strict restrictions on money, but in other regards, money can flow very freely. And I think so long as people think there's money to be, I'm sorry, so long as people think that there's a benefit to funding politicians in various regards, the money will flow. It'll just find a way. Uh, your question, I think I can't imagine why you're asking me that, uh, <laughs> uh, concerns the bully pulpit, right? When you're the sitting yep. president, you have a lot of clout. You can call national conferences. You can alert the media. Uh, the media doesn't have to cover you. They're not required to, but as a matter of issue, they will. And they give you lots of free attention. So that's why incumbents in general tend to have certain benefits over challengers. It's always going to be the case. Every case that goes before the Supreme Court is significant, but few cases are met with as much hysteria as Moore v. Harper. Let's take a look. What if I told you that the single most important case on American democracy and for American democracy in the nation's history is going before the Supreme Court this week. And what if I told you the entire outcome of this case, potentially the fate of our democracy itself, may rest with one justice, Amy Coney Barrett. Because that... Is Moore v. Harper, quote, unquote, the single most important case on American democracy and for American democracy in our nation's history? No. And how do you think the case will be decided? No, I don't. I, I, I tend to, whenever I see that sort of doomsday prophecy about a Supreme Court case, I just ignore it. I just stop listening immediately. 
Like abortion, it'll be the end of the world. Okay, things aren't that bad. Affirmative action, end of the world. No, things won't be that bad. Right, election law won't be that bad. Every single time they say it's going to be the end of the world, democracy, I just don't believe them anymore. You know, it's like the boy who cries wolf. If you keep saying the same thing over and over again, I stop believing you. So I, that's my advice in general. Um, more v. Harper concerns the power of state governments to affect federal election law. Right. The Constitution gives states the power to set times and places of elections. Um, but it also says the state legislature shall have this power. It doesn't say the state courts or the state government, the state legislature. There's an argument that this means that state courts cannot interfere with certain elements of federal election law in the states. Now, I don't know that the states will get this sort of blank check to whatever they want. I think the court recognizes that the state courts can intervene too far. They can go a little bit too much in just making up new districts and drawing maps and such. So even if the North Carolina legislature wins, this won't create sort of blank check for states to go rogue and to appoint the president wherever they want. There's still law governing it, right? There's still federal law governing this issue. So I, again, I, I would just sort of <sighs> take a deep breath of a Morby Harper. It will be okay. This too shall pass. If you're just joining us, our guest this segment has been Professor Josh Blackman. How can our listeners continue to follow you online and follow your work? Sure. Well, they should definitely buy my book, An Introduction to Constitutional Law, 100 Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know. It's a good book. Uh, also on Twitter, I'm at Josh M. Blackman. I also write for Reason Magazine at the Volk Conspiracy. And I'm a professor in Houston, South Texas College of Law. Thank you for being our guest today. Thank you so much. And now it's that time of the show where we bring in DK to get his take on things. Come on in, DK. Hola. Hola. How are you? I'm okay. That was an interesting interview. Tell us what you thought about it. Yeah, we touched upon a lot of interesting points, so not just the history of the Supreme Court. There was a lot of African-American history involved in a lot yeah. of contemporary issues. One thing he mentioned was um, the campaign finance reform. That's a big story even today. It was a breaking story that um, Sam Beckman-Fried, SBF of FTX fame, he's finally been arrested. And it turns out his one of the charges against him, one of the more serious charges against him, was how he was abusing the campaign finance system. He was given a lot more money and a lot more uh, devious ways than he initially admitted. Um, so it's a, it's a big area. It's like the professor was saying that money will flow to our politics. And one thing you mentioned was that that horrific Biden speech that he was allowed to go on network television for during prime time, no less, the most supposedly the most viable block of time uh, a channel like ABC or CBS has, and give a and give a free speech free to him that mm -hmm. that just basically harangue folks like me, you know, us us MAGA types, and that wasn't considered a, a finance donation. But yet, if you were running for office, and I gave you the maximum, I think it's 2500 to support your campaign. And then I gave you a car so you can drive around and hand out flyers. And matter of fact, I printed out the flyers for you. And 
I, I printed out the placards for you and I did this and do that, I would definitely be arrested for that. You know, as a matter of fact, if I if I gave you a $2,500 check for your campaign and then I gave you another $200 under the table for your campaign, I could be arrested for that also. Mm -hmm. So the amount of corruption in campaign finance just... It's a staggering, and it always or generally tends to be towards the left. So, and having worked on a few gubernatorial campaigns, I've worked on some senatorial campaigns, I've even worked on some presidential campaigns. I can tell you that in kind donations, which this would have been considered one, um, yeah, all of it has to be reported. You're even the hours that you work on certain things. Um, in a C3 or C4 environment, uh, you have to do reporting. Um, if you work for a 501C4, you have to, to file federal hours um, worked on or hours that you work on federal campaigns or federal business. So, I mean, the record keeping is, is quite uh, intense and scrutinized, as you might imagine. So, yeah. That's very interesting stuff. Also, uh, Jack Dorsey, the, the former head of Twitter. <laughs> I know. I'm going to give myself some serious uh, ocular pain with as much eye rolling as I've been doing this week. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he gave a, he released a statement today. It's more like a blog that um, I wanted us to speak on for a few minutes if we have time. If we can get that on screen. says here that I'll just read the, some parts I highlight. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It says there's a lot of conversation around the Twitter files. Here's my take and thoughts of how to fix the issues identified. I'll start with the principles I've come to believe based on everything I've learned and experienced through my past actions as a Twitter co-founder and lead. Number one, social media must be resilient to corporate and government control. Number two, only the original author may remove content they produce. Number three, moderation is best implemented by algorithmic choice. And he adds, the Twitter when I let it and the Twitter of today do not meet any of these principles. That's an understatement. <laughs> That's and, an understatement. and maybe we should add to that. And when hauled before a judiciary committee, you need to tell the truth under oath. I'm suggesting yeah, that, that helps also that perhaps that may not have been, you know, the total truth. And then I'll skip yeah. down to the paragraph that begins the biggest mistake. He adds, the biggest mistake I made uh, was continue to invest in building blocks for us to manage the public conversation, to manage the public conversation versus building tools for the people using Twitter to easily manage it for themselves. So Where's the ding dang edit button? <laughs> That's what I want to know if you're going to talk about managing he, it yourself. Give me an edit button. That it was their responsibility because they had the platform to manage the conversation. And you know what manage the conversation means. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah. Promote this guy. Oh, yeah. this guy. Yeah. And I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to go all the way down to the bottom that says the only way, if I could see it, 
and there it is. The only way I know of to truly live up to these three principles is a free and open protocol for social media. That Which he's building, owned. by the way, <laughs> completely yeah. altruistic statement there, that is not owned Jack. by a single company or group of companies, and it's resilient to corporate and government influence. See, that that's the problem with uh, Twitter. The, even Elon Musk is going to run into this problem because Elon Musk wants to do this thing, but a lot of people who advertise on Twitter are being are either run by people of the left or intimidated by groups on the left, and they will pull their advertising out of Twitter if, say, for example, um, Donald Trump begins tweeting more often. You know, Donald Trump tweets, some left group gets angry about it, wants to boycott, for example, McDonald's, which is my favorite restaurant, by the way. I might go there later today. <laughs> I'll take a large order of fries and a yes, chocolate and a shake. Quarter thing. Pounder. <laughs> no, I don't need a quarter pounder. Yeah. Although that was better than the nothing burger. So yeah, yeah okay. I'll bring you a quarter pounder and a nothing burger. So anyway, so the, these left groups will intimidate a group, a corporation like McDonald's from advertising on Twitter and Eventually, that can drive Twitter into bankruptcy, even with the owner who's the richest man in the world. And as um, Jack also points out, there's also government who wants to come into your office and say, even if you're perfectly nonpartisan, you have an FBI agent across the desk from you telling you that there's going to be misinformation involving you know, a presidential candidate's son's laptop. It's going to be Russian information or... Oh, who could you be referencing? <laughs> I know that's like a, a completely made up, just, you know, for example. Yeah. Yeah. To, to quote the professor of Blackman, I can't imagine why you're asking me this. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. Um, so, so you went into that scenario also. I just thought the blog was an interesting look into the world of social media um, the the pressures involved in having a, a speech platform, they, they face pressure from the government, especially the current government that wants to prevent the opposition party from having a voice in the government. Um, they run it to pressure from advertisers. And we saw, I think in one of the Twitter files, how much pressure they face from their own woke employees. Well, we got to get rid of Trump. Why? Doesn't matter why. Let's get rid of him. Why? Because yeah, he's, he's got one strike remaining, but we'll make something up and we'll make get it done. Up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I have real issues, you know, because um, we knew all along that this was going on. I mean, I have to tell you, um, as you know, in my day job, I handle social media and I've handled social media for a number of very, very large influential accounts. And I can tell you the exact month and day when some of these tools, these algorithmic tools went into effect where I saw uh, engagement drop, not by hundreds, not by thousands, not even by 10,000s, but by millions. Um, and I saw it. I, I actually saw the 
back end, the insights and all of the, the details. And so I know for a fact that it did happen. And so people telling me, oh, it never happened. No, 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 you just right wing conspiracy nut. You know, I knew that that was just, you know, whatever they were saying, because it, it does happen. And here's the other thing that I find interesting about Jack's blog. Like I said, it's not even altruistic because he's building a competitor, A, so how can you, I mean, you have to know that in context um, as he's writing this thing. So, oh yeah, you should come over to my platform is really what he's saying, this thing when I build it. But, you know, it raises some questions about um, the future of Twitter and how it will be monetized because, you know, you and I have had a number of discussions. I really disagree with this $8 a month verification thing. I think that uh, accounts should be verified organically as they are verified now. I don't think you need to send in all of your documents and that kind of stuff because I don't want Jack Dorsey walking around having my driver's license, a picture of my driver's license in his servers. But, and I'm, you know, Jack's not really there anymore, so I don't have to worry about that. But I'm just saying, I don't really want that of anybody to have my information. And I've had to send it for a number of the clients that I manage. So I know that that is a process. Um, and so, um, and when you send it out redacted, they say, oh, well, this is fake. You can't, no, 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 no. So, um, but I think the monetization thing, the, the verification has to be organic, but you can charge for things like the perks to have super followers and to monetize uh, those sorts of things. If you want to have, they have Twitter circles and um, chat and spaces and those kinds of things, charge for those add-ons, but don't charge the $8 a month verification because anybody could go out and buy something to mock your name or my name or some other celebrity name. Elon Musk had a few people that that tried to clone his name um, that he kicked off for impersonation. So I really do believe that the verification process, that V has to mean something, not just that you had eight bucks every month that you could shell out. Well, I hear they're going to uh, fix that problem and there's going to be blue check marks and gold check marks. I don't know the details of it all. It's probably too techy for me anyway. And I'm not going to pay eight bucks a month. Uh, for anything at this point, but it's, but it does to your point, it does uh, strike a blow to the kneecaps of advertisers so that there is a monetization plan in yeah. process so that you don't have to bow to the whims of what an advertiser says or whatever. And it's funny, you know, the thing that I really crack up about DK is if you look at the reportings of, you know, all the open secrets documents and all that kind of stuff, Tesla owned by Elon Musk, shocker, um, tends to give more to Democrat candidates than it does Republican candidates, but that never gets mentioned. Only, you know, people who give to right-leaning candidates. That's the only time that they bring up donations of corporations or individuals. Well, he's a Democrat himself, essentially. I think... Uh... I think he considers himself a moderate centrist now, well, but he's I, I think he's, he's a libertarian. He said that he voted for a Republican the first time when he voted for uh, Maya Flores, I think, maybe uh, earlier this year. Yeah. And he intends to vote for DeSantis. But you see a lot of uh, Democrats who are speaking out against the regime. You know, Glenn Greenwald is my favorite example, but there's Matt Taibbi and, um, and others who... Uh, Alan Dershowitz is, is another one. There are others who 
are are lefties, they're old school lefties, and but the Democratic Party has changed so much oh, yeah. over the last couple of decades that you can find clips of someone like a, a Joe Biden. I think we saw this on I think it was a Tucker last Tucker recently. He had a clip of uh, Joe Biden on Meet the Press denouncing gay marriage, saying marriage is between a man and a woman only a few years ago. Barack Obama said that too. Yeah. 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 So the Democrat party is, is changing so radically. So we went from that to having drag queens at a, a ceremony, supposedly codifying marriage to anyone Yeah. for any reason. And but I, I just want to skip ahead and look at the bigger picture when it comes to social media. It's more about, it's more than just about Twitter and what's being put on Facebook. It's about uh, one party authoritarian control. We are talking about the same group of people who want to have a disinformation board so they can officially censor what's being said, it, whether that's about COVID, it could be about abortion. If you dispute the election, even though there are legitimate reasons to dispute the last presidential election, if you dispute that, if you if you um, refuse to call a trans trans woman she or whatever pronoun that trans person says is preference, that that could be considered a hate crime. Which you see that happening in in Europe now. It's a hate crime to call a man who want, who identifies as a woman him now and these are the same people who want to add places like guam and puerto rico as states just so they can have more senators in the senate who would be democrats these are the same people who have viciously opened up the southern border so that we see in thousands of people from all over the world not the best to quote donald trump they are, they are not seeing their best by opening their prisons and they're taking people who are impoverished and they're sending those people to, to cross into the United States. And what a great anti-poverty program, anti-crime program that is for a foreign country. You get rid of the criminals, you get rid of the poor, your country is much easier to manage the heck with the United States. This is all being done to give the Democrat party uh, one-party control of the national government. Look how many things are being federalized now. They want to federalize the police department so that whoever's yeah. head of the Democratic Party has control over policing, how they want to federalize voting so that all the little schemes they're coming up with, the, the, the tote bags of votes and m voting a month before the election and so forth, mm -hmm. they want to make that... A, uh, a national and they want a, a national ban on voter ID. Look at their opposition to uh, the the Dobbs case where abortion was it wasn't uh, ruled out. It was just thrown to the states, but they don't want the states to have any say in anything anymore. They want one party government. I can I can rant about this for some time now, but I'll, oh yeah, I can I'll tell you're a little a little passionate, a little head up. You. No, I, I we're good. Okay. Were those the stories that you had for today? Yeah, I spoke a lot today. <laughs> yeah, you did. That's good.
Well, then it's time for us to wrap up this episode of African-American Conservatives. Please go to brightnews.com, go to anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S. Acons.substack.com is another place where you will find us or your favorite podcast provider. Until then, this is Marie. This is DK. Bidding you farewell for this episode of African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement.